Well, good morning, guys. It's a little weird being in this position after being in other places. And uh, yeah, it's interesting. I also want to say I get a little jumpy when I have to speak of something serious. So if I just start like talking really, really fast, I'm just going to be like that confused look and I'll slow down. All right. So today we're going to be in 1 Samuel 7. So you guys can open your Bibles to that. And before we get into that, uh, you guys know me, I assume, decently well, but I'll let you guys in on a little bit of who I am and from my family, which will hopefully go into the passage. So when I was about, let's see, about five years old, because I remembered so much back then, when I was about five years old, my mother took off to a ladies' retreat and left us four kids with my dad. And my dad, of course, being the responsible husband, would always check up on us to make sure, okay, one, two, three, four. All right, they're all here. About every 15 minutes, he would come around counting one, two, three, four. And on one of these counts of one, two, three, four, there's only one, two, three, one, two, three. It's like, oh no, which one's missing? And it just so happened to be my little sister, Rachel, who had disappeared. And so what does my dad do? He looks around looking for clues. Where did she go? Well, first of all, we found out the dog's gone, the dog's leash is gone, and the girl's gone. So with those clues, my dad took off to the road because it seemed that my little sister took the side, my little three-year-old sister decided to take the dog for a walk, or more like the dog took the girl for the walk. <laughs> and so to make a long story, long story short, it, he, he, bike, he got on his bike and just boom down the road. And uh, yeah, he found her a half a mile away, with hooked onto the dog, smiling, talking to this lady. And the lady's like, are you supposed to be around here? I don't know you. <laughs> and just like, you know, when my dad did find her, the joy and comfort of, first of all, with my mom, be like, yeah, first day without my wife, and I lose one of the kids. <laughs> but the joy and comfort that, hey, I found my child. I am bringing her back to where she belongs in my family that he chased after, he pursued her. And that was a good thing and brought her back home. So before we actually get into our passage in 1 Samuel 7, there's this funny thing called context, which tells us, hey, what's before something? Some of you guys may know like this goofy song I every once in a while sing on my ukulele that goes, I'll be the racist dragon and how the verse goes, it goes, Pots, chapter 6. Now all the villagers chased Albie, the racist dragon, into a very dark, very scary cave. And you're like, wait, what? What happened in chapters 5, 4, 3, 2, 1? You just jump halfway in there. And so, to not just jump halfway into a passage, we're going to take a crash course through the context, what happened previously before. And just to understand, figure out what is happening in this passage. Why are the Israelites surrounded by the Philistines? Why does God bail them out? And yeah, we'll see where that comes from. So first of all, Samuel is actually the last judge of Israel. And if you read the books, book of Judges, you'll see that there's a cycle in them. And the cycle goes like this. I've got to make sure I mirror it right because this is left. Well, my left, your right. But it goes like this. The people are in a right relationship with God. They are where they're supposed to be, the children of Israel. But that generation dies off, and what happens to the next generation? They forget who God is. And because of that, they fall into sin, and they anger God. 
and God sends people to oppress them. And then what happens? They cry out to God, and God delivers them and sends them a judge. And then they are back in the right relationship with God. Samuel's the last judge in this cycle. And we're going to see the different parts of this cycle. So we're actually going to jump down to uh, 1 Samuel 2 first. So that's since you're already in Samuel, if you want to join me down there. We learn about what's happening in Israel at this time, when Samuel is just a little boy. And we're going to kind of start this all off in 1 Samuel 2, 12. And we're talking about where we are in the cycle. Now the sons of Eli, Eli the high priest of Israel, were worthless men. They did not know the Lord. It was the custom of the priests with the people was that when they, any man came to offer sacrifice, the priest's servant would come while the meat was boiling in the pot and with a three-pronged fork, take it out. This was in a blatant disregard of what God had commanded back in Deuteronomy or Leviticus. The very people, the priests of God, who were supposed to be like, hey, people of Israel, we will tell you who God is and what he is like. These very people are the ones who are blaspheming God, who are like, who is the Lord? I, who is he? I know, why should I care for what he cares for? And we find out Eli's sons not only did this with the sacrifice, were like, God's sacrifice, what does it mean? Nothing. But they also committed adultery with the women of the uh, tabernacle. And that, it's interesting to think about the people who should be closest to God, the people who served in the tabernacle, the people to remind them this is who God is, are the very ones leading the people being like, hey, God doesn't matter. This is, God's not important. And so, as we find on later in this chapter, God rebukes Eli for the behavior of his sons and says he's going to bring calamity upon them. We see that also in chapter 3. Now, chapter 4 is one that I kind of want to camp on a little bit. It contrasts the most with chapter 7. 4 and 7, guess what, are connected. It's funny. And the, okay, so here we go in chapter 4. Now Israel went up to battle against the Philistines, and they encamped at Ebenezer. And the Philistines encamped at Aphek. And the Philistines drew up a line against Israel. And when the battle spread, Israel was defeated before the Philistines, who killed about 4,000 men on the field of battle. And when the people came to the camp, the elders of Israel asked, Why has the Lord defeated us this day before the Philistines? This is a really good question. When, like, why did this happen? But then what their next line is, is like, whoa. They're like, okay, we got defeated by the Philistines. This is not what God has promised us. How do we defeat the Philistines? And they go, hey, I know. We'll bring the ark. The ark of the covenant, God's visible sign of his promise to be the God of the people, children of Israel. Visible sign. So as we keep reading down, they bring the Ark of the Covenant to the battlefield, and there is a great shout in the camp of Israel. And we get a cool glimpse into what's actually happening in the camp of the Philistines. And just imagine this. If you guys were in the camp of the Philistines at this time, and you hear this, your enemies across there, and you just hear this shout. And this is what they're feeling right now. The Philistines were afraid and said, a god has come into the camp. And they say, woe to us, for nothing like this has happened before. Who can deliver us from the power of these mighty gods? These are the gods who struck down the Egyptians with every plague in the wilderness. And what does their commander say? 
Take courage and be men, O Philistines, lest you become slaves to the Hebrew, as, as you, they have been to you. And be men and fight. It was, it's, it's interesting to see that the Philistines almost have a better view of God than the Israelites at this time. They're like, this is the God who wrecked the Egyptians. He destroyed them. We can't stand before this God. And they're encouraged, though, stand, be men and fight. And what happens in this battle? It's easy. We can just read on, but I'll let you know. Israel just gets destroyed, annihilated. Eli's two sons, the sons who have been blaspheming against God, who have been leading Israel astray into idol worship, to not caring about who God is, die. The Ark of the Covenant, the visible symbol of God's presence with his people, is captured, is taken away. And everybody's in a panic. It's, uh, they've been routed. And everyone goes to their own home. And that's just not a battle that, oh, we got beat. Yeah, we'll come back and beat them. It's a fight where it's like we've been destroyed. We're in dismay. There's no order. And to cap off the end of this chapter, Eli dies. The high priest dies. And we go down to the end. And we see Eli's daughter-in-law giving birth to a son. And after hearing the news that the ark's been captured, Israel's been destroyed, she names the kid Ichabod, which is kind of a goofy name. But it actually has heavy meaning in it. And she's saying, the glory has departed from Israel. Saying, God has left his people. We have nothing. Everything is hopeless. Life is terrible right now. That is what she communicates by naming this kid Ichabod. And she dies. And still, as we come up to chapter 7, we get the interesting episode of the Ark of the Covenant in the land of the Philistines. And it's interesting because the Philistines, we have the Ark. We have captured their God. But it's really interesting to see that when the Ark, they put it in the God's temple, and what happens? Their God falls on the ground. It breaks apart. And they're struck with various diseases and plagues. And they're like, who can stand before this God? We've got to get rid of him. He's killing us. And so near the end of the sixth chapter, this is after they shuffled the ark around everywhere in their land, and there were just plague and destruction following it that God was causing. They asked their diviners, their, their wise men, what are we supposed to do with the ark of the covenant that we've captured? And they devise a simple test. And they go like, okay, we're going to put the ark on a cart, taken by two milk cows, we're going to take their calves away. If it's God doing this, all this calamity, sending us plagues, tumors, and rats, the, the cows are going to go straight back to Israel, to Beth Shemesh. If, however, it just happened to us by coincidence, the cows will go somewhere else. And cows with calves, the cows generally always go back to their calves. And what's the clear, blatant sign that happens? The cows just take straight off for the land of Israel. Blatantly saying, this has been the Lord who's been inflicting us these plagues. That's so a really cool thing to actually see. Who brought the Ark of the Covenant back? Who brought the Ark, the symbol of God's promise, back to the Israelites? God did. It wasn't the Israelites going back and raiding and taking it back. God was the one who said, I'm going to bring my visible symbol of my promise back to my people. And as we end in chapter 6, the ark comes back to Bethlehem, and the people of Israel are celebrating. They're like, the ark is back, the ark is back, and they sacrifice the new cows. But during that time, what happens? Seventy of the men are struck down for looking at the ark. 
and down in, which verse is it? Beshemes offered burnt. Chapter 6, verse 19. This is talking about God. And God, he struck some of the men of Beshemesh because they looked upon the ark of the Lord. He struck 70 men of them, and the people mourned because the Lord struck the people with a great blow. And then we get to see what people's response to what God has done. And the peop- then the men of Beshemesh said, Who is able to stand before the Lord? This holy God. And to whom shall, we- and to whom shall he go up away from us? Do you guys see the, the contrast in that? Yes, God is back. No, God's visible symbol with his people is back. And all of a sudden we're struck down because he's so holy, so righteous. And we were like, what should we do with him? And in our human response, what do we say? Get him out of here. We can't stand before him. And this, all this background is going to be what leads us to chapter 7. So if you'll turn to chapter 7 now. In verse, starting in verse 2. Actually, 3. I'm sorry, I've goofed up. I sent the message. All right, verse 2, I was right. All right. Turn to chapter 7, verse 2. From that day, the ark was lodged at Kiriath Jerem. A long time passed, some 20 years. And all the house of Israel lamented after the Lord. After seeing God's holiness, and they, we can't stand before this God. We are not in right standing. They lamented after the Lord. You guys remember the cycle of where we were? In chapter 2, we were talking about Eli's sons leading Israel astray. They were in sin. And God sent judgment. They were wrecked. They were destroyed. And now we have the people lamenting back after God, seeking God. And this is where we come in with our character, Samuel, in verse 3. And Samuel said to all the house of Israel, If you are returning to the Lord with all your heart, then put away your foreign gods and the Ashtoreth from among you, and direct your heart to the Lord, and serve him only, and he will deliver you out of the hand of the Philistines. So the people of Israel put away the Baals and the Ashtoreth, and they served the Lord only. This is a great time. It's one of the times where the children of Israel are returning back to the Lord. Then Samuel said to him, Gather all Israel at Mizpah, and I will pray to the Lord for you. So they all gathered at Mizpah. They drew water and poured it out before the Lord and fasted and said, We have sinned against the Lord. And Samuel judged the people at Mizpah. Now, when the Philistines heard that the people of Israel were gathered at Mizpah, the lords of the Philistines went up against Israel. Something that's really interesting geographically, in our early, like in the earlier battle over at Ebenezer in chapter 4, that was right on the fringe, on the outside part of Israel, where they fought with the Philistines, the outside part of their territory. Mizpah is in the middle, is almost at the heart of Israeli territory. And the Philistines have been oppressing them, are strong enough, they're like, hey, let's go all the way to the middle of their land to fight them just showing how, how different life was since that huge battle. Back in chapter, uh, chapter 7, verse 7. And when the people of Israel heard it, they were afraid of the Philistines. 
And the people of Israel said to Samuel, Do not cease to cry out to the Lord our God for us, that he may save us from the hand of the Philistines. So Samuel took a nursing lamb and offered it as a whole burnt offering to the Lord. And Samuel cried to the Lord for Israel, and the Lord answered him. As Samuel was offering up the burnt offering, the Philistines drew near to attack Israel. But the Lord thundered and with a mighty sound that day against the Philistines and threw them into confusion. And they were defeated before Israel. And the men of Israel went out from Mizpah and pursued the Philistines and struck them as far as beth for miles. Then Samuel took up a stone and set it between Mizpah and Shen and called it Ebenezer. For he said, Till now the Lord has helped us. So the Philistines were subdued and did not enter the territory of Israel. And the hand of the Lord was against the Philistines all the days of Samuel. And the cities that the Philistines had taken from Israel were restored from Ekron to Gath. And Israel delivered their territory from the hand of the Philistines. And there was peace between Israel and the Amorites. In that ending passage, we see the end of the cycle. That the people are back in a right relationship with God. And God clearly shows that by just routing the Philistines. Which when you think of the contrast between chapter 4, what happened in chapter 4? Israel was routed. Israel was in dismay. In chapter 7, God shows up and routes the enemies of his people. So, it's int- so it can be like, oh, that was an interesting story. But thinking to what does this passage from 1 Samuel 2 to 7, what does this have for us today who live in the 21st century? We don't have Philistines who are, they're just over the hill and they're coming this way. We don't have that in our lives today right now. So what does this have to do with us? I'd say a lot because it tells us of who God is, what kind of God we serve, what he does and who he is. In this chapter 7, the main punch of what the main idea he's trying to get across is what Samuel says near the end. With in 7 verse 12, Then Samuel took a stone and set up between Mizpah and Shen and called its name Ebenezer, for he said, Till now the Lord has helped us. That's the main drive of this passage. As interesting, as I was thinking, like, what is Samuel talking about? What does that phrase mean? Until this time, God has helped us. When I was first doing my study, I was like, oh, it's till this time that God thundered and just sent the uh, Philistines scurrying off. Yeah, till this time. But if we look at it, what does he call the stone? He called its name Ebenezer. And where have we bumped into that name before? So if we go back to chapter 4, where is that first battle at? At Ebenezer, where Israel was destroyed, was routed. And just think of this now. Like, imagine the Samuel, he grabs this, I assume, a big old rock, or has a bunch of guys grab this big old rock, and he calls it Ebenezer. For us today, an equivalent of it, it would be if I said, hey, 9-11, everybody, would, oh, we know what that is. This would be equivalent to them. Hey, remember Ebenezer, that time 20 years ago, where we were all good and then we got destroyed? He's bringing this, this Ebenezer, he's saying, Ebenezer, this battle we had, that we were destroyed. And he says, tell now, the Lord has helped us. He's saying, 
since the time of Ebenezer, since the time that we were judged, that we've been destroyed, the Lord has helped us. The next question I had to ask myself, helped us do what? Helped us where? And if you remember back in 7 verse 2, all Israel lamented after the Lord that he had helped them come back to the place they are now. He helped them through that cycle. Oh, we're in judgment. He helped them come back to repentance to be in the right relationship with him. It's also interesting to look back in chapter 4 of actually the word Ebenezer itself, which means uh, rock of help or rock, <laughs> rock of help, the place of something I hope and I trust in. And it's interesting to look back in chapter 4 and say, what were the Israelites trusting in in chapter 4? You guys remember? Hey, why have we been defeated? I know what we can do. We'll bring the ark, the symbol of God's covenant promise with his people. They were trusting in the ark, the symbol of God's covenant, instead of the Lord himself, which we see contrasted in 7 with who are they trusting when the Philistines are upon them. They say, Samuel, cry out to the Lord, our God, for us. They're not saying, hey, maybe the ark can save us. They're saying, cry out to the Lord. So we see the two contrasts of chapter 4 of like, hey, they're trusting in a symbol into 7 where they're trusting in the Lord. Which then ask, we have to ask ourselves the question then, are we being like the Israelites in chapter 4? Are we, hey, we have a, oh, this place doesn't have one. We have a cross. We have the symbol. Yeah, I, yeah, I have the cross. Of course I'll be accepted in the heaven. Compared to like future, like, or do we trust in the person who is on the cross, who gives the cross importance, who is Jesus? So yeah. And it's interesting to see from chapter 2 to 7, and Samuel's statement of saying, until... Since the time of chapter 4, God has been helping us to get back to right relationship with him. That God's been pursuing his people. That you see that, in that God has been doing the pursuing. We see that in 5 and 6, with him bringing the ark back from the Philistines. So yes. So what are we trusting in? Are we trusting in a symbol? Oh, the ark? Or are we trusting in the Lord? And also, like, when we are not, when we are in the cycle of, oh, who is the Lord? And I sin and disrespect God, and God sends craziness in my life. Do I, when I call out to the Lord, repent to the Lord, who is bringing me to repentance? Who has been pursuing me? God has. I was looking for a clear example of this in the New Testament. If you guys will turn to Matthew 16, actually 18, surprise. Eighteen verse ten. It's the parable of the lost sheep. And we're going to start in verse twelve. So eighteen twelve. What do you think? If a man has a hundred sheep and one of them has gone astray, does he not leave the ninety-nine on the mountains and go in search of the one that went astray? And if he finds it, truly I say to you, he rejoices over it more more than over the ninety-nine that never went astray. So it is not the will of my Father who is in heaven that 
one of these little ones should perish. There we get a prime example of God pursuing his people. What happened? The sheep went astray. What happened in this story, this narrative back then? The people, God's people, went astray, and God brought them back to right relationship with him. And for us, when we have gone astray, God is the one who brings us back to repentance to him. And I also pick this passage actually in 1 Samuel 7, a little selfishly because it's, uh, there's a song written about it, which is, uh, Come Thou Fount of Every Blessing. And the second verse, if you guys can remember, is, Here I raise my Ebenezer. Ebenezer, the thing I hope, the thing I trust in. And it's also important to know that the guy who was writing the song at the time, he was having problems in his life with sin, that he would be, oh, I'm a good Christian here, and all of a sudden he'd be in the brothels, and he'd come back in repentance. And this was actually his song of saying, no, no more, no more of this in my life. I am following Jesus. I am coming in repentance, following him with all my heart. And we see in 7, here I raise my Ebenezer, the thing I'm holding on to, the thing I'm trusting. He's saying, I'm trusting Jesus. Hither by thy help I've come. I've come to this place of repentance by his help. And the rest of the verse, you know, safely to arrive at home. Jesus sought me when a stranger, wandering from the fold of God. I was running away from Jesus, he's saying, just as the children of Israel were running away from God. But he to rescue me from danger interposed his precious blood. So yes, while I was running away from God, God chased me down and paid the price so that I could come back to relationship with him. So yes, this passage in 1 Samuel 7 shows us who God is, what kind of God he is, and what he does. He's a God who pursues his people. He's a God who brings us back to repentance to him. So I want you guys to remember that if we're ever in a time like, I can't repent to God, but because of blank, 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 or whatever it is, be like, God is actually pursuing you at this time. To say, return to me full-heartedly. God wants to bring you back to right relationship with him. So yes, God is a God who pursues his people. Let's pray. Dear Lord, thank you for this day, and thank you for your word and the stories from the past that you have given us. Let us remember that you are a God who pursues us, that you are the one who brings us back to repentance, brings us back to you. Give us strength to follow you wholeheartedly. Amen.